Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Let's pray. Father, open up our eyes to see that we might learn from you. Use your word as it was intended, Lord, to reveal yourself to us, to reveal ourselves to us. Lord, that we might be even more dependent upon you for your grace and your mercy, your wisdom and your leading. Bless our time, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Proverbs, who wrote the book of Proverbs? All of the book of Proverbs? I set you up, didn't I? Uh, What we're going to do is today we're going to look at a proverb that was not written by Solomon. You remember there are 30, maybe you do, there are 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs. The first uh, 24 of those chapters Solomon put down specifically because he wanted his son to learn some things. Then chapter 25 to 29, a group of men after the fact, they were Proverbs of Solomon, but a group of men after the fact said these need to be included in there as well. So 250 years later, they included those. We call those, they're the Proverbs of Solomon, but they were included by the men of Hezekiah. Now, chapter 30 is a proverb that is written by someone else altogether. It's written by a fellow by the name of Agur. Look at verse 1. It says, the words of Agur, son of Jaka, Jaka, the oracle. The man declares, I am weary, O God, I am weary, uh, O God, and I am worn out. Now, we don't know much about this fellow Agur. As a matter of fact, all we know is what that verse tells us, that he was the son of Jaka and so on and so forth. And then the, the information that he communicates to us throughout the chapter, we get insight into this type of person, the way he thought about things and the things that he communicated. But that's it. Some people don't even think that this is actually a man. The word agor, it means to gather. And so some people think that they gathered words of wisdom and they delivered it. Jaka means blameless. And so they delivered it to the blameless. But I'm going to go with this idea that there's actually this fella. And his name is, as you see here, Agur. Notice how he begins. And we've been looking through the, the book of Proverbs. We have an idea of what wisdom is now. Um, as we've been communicating from Solomon, and we see that Agor has that same understanding. And it is this, it is a right understanding of self. So the beginning of wisdom we know is to fear the Lord or to know the Lord or to walk in the Lord's ways. And if you fear the Lord, then you have a right understanding of self. And Agor essentially says that, look at verse 2, he says, Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I... Uh, knowledge of the Holy One. He begins by calling himself stupid. Now, typically, we would frown upon calling ourselves or somebody else stupid and even calling ourselves stupid. Our little kids might say that if they can't get a task done, they'll say, I'm so stupid. And we'll say, don't say that about yourself. You know, you're so smart and handsome and you look just like me and, you know, things like that. That's what I say to my kids. I don't know what you guys say here. So typically we would frown. But here is really what what Agor is really saying is this. He's saying, I am unlearned, okay? I have not gone to the best schools. I don't have the advanced degrees that others might have. I'm just a man, he would say, especially as he puts himself into the, the context of the presence of God. I'm too stupid. I'm just a man. He would even say that I am less than a man, essentially here. 
And his words then, in, in that context of what he means by this idea of stupid, his words are reminiscent of the prophet Amos. You remember the prophet Amos, who was not born a prophet, his dad wasn't a prophet, didn't go to the school for the prophets. Amos said this, Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet nor the son of a prophet. I was a herdsman and a dresser of the sycamore figs. But God got a hold of Amos's life. He spoke a word into Amos's heart, and in obedience, he responded. And so very similarly here, uh, Agor is saying, I didn't go to the best schools. I didn't study these things necessarily to the learn. I'm just, I'm less than a man even. And despite the fact that others would look at Agor and say, no, you're more than a man. You're one of the wisest of men. And we, we have evidence of that by the fact that one of his chapters is here in the book of Proverbs. Despite the fact that others would look at Agor and say, you're a pretty wise individual, Agor rightly recognized who he himself was. More foolish, or he judged himself as more foolish than enemy, or than any, I should say. And that's the secret to Agor's wisdom, his humility. The secret to his wisdom is his humility. You know what? I don't know everything. And I need to be taught. And I need the Lord to open up my heart that I might understand. That's Agor's approach to life. And that's the secret to his wisdom. And it's no different for him than it would be for you and I. And it, so it begins in humility. Now, the second thing that we notice about Agor is, as our sermon title will tell us, he is keenly observant. You're going to see throughout this particular chapter, he's aware of things. He's taking notice of things. He's prayerfully considering these things. And those three things together is what causes a person to grow in wisdom. They approach life with humility. They're keenly observant. And then they're prayerful about those things. Lord, what does this mean? What do you have to say about this? How would you want to speak into this particular matter? Matter. And so his wisdom begins, he's aware of his ignorance. Now look at verse 4, he moves on from his own ignorance of just things around him, life in general, and he'll move in in verse 4, notice what he says, who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of his earth? What's his name? What's his son's name? Surely you know. Now those words, maybe if I, if I didn't put Proverbs 34 there, some of us might think, well, that's from the book of Job, isn't it? It sounds so much like the Lord's response to Job and the others that were there with Job in the chapters, Job chapter 38, Job chapter 39, right there at the end of the book. And there you might recall after all of these counselors of Job have given him all sorts of advice and wisdom and don't you know these things and don't you understand? And then Job even sort of buying into that a little and saying, I don't understand why God would do this and that and so on and so forth. Then the Lord answers and he begins to ask questions like this here, addressing their arrogance, addressing the errors in their thinking, addressing this idea that you think you know, but you don't know. Some of you that are football fans, you may recall there was a football, this is American football, um, coach who had had it. And he's at this particular press conference and, and all these reporters are asking him questions and he just couldn't take it anymore. And he says, let me just clue you guys in on something. If you've ever been in a situation like this, you've wanted to say this all your life. The coach says, all of you out there, you think you know, but you don't know. And that's essentially what the Lord is saying here to Job, to his counselors, to a and Agor saying it to himself. You think you know these things, but you don't know these things. Job chapter 38 in verse 4, he says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? 
You think you know all these things? Where were you when I created the earth? Where were you? Which one of you were the ones that gave the instructions to the sea that you could come in great might, but you got to stop there? Which one of you told the sea that it could do that? Which one of you has commanded the morning to come up in the morning there since the beginning of days and to cause it to go down at night? Which one of you commanded them to do that? And of course, the answer to all of those questions is not me. None, sorry, Lord. You know, that's the answer there. And the Lord in Job had to be the one to ask those questions to bring those guys back to perspective. But here with Agor, we see Agor is asking himself those particular questions. And that's to his credit, really, that he calls himself out. And so he asks a series of questions. You can see him there. All of them have the same answer. First question, who has ascended to heaven and come down? Agor's answer, not me. Who has gathered the wind in his fist and flung it in that particular direction? Answer, not me. Who's wrapped up the waters in a garment? Not me. Who's established all the ends of the earth? Not me. What's his name? What's his son's name? Well, it ain't me. And he's asking these questions of himself. But if he asked them of anybody, the answer would be the same. No matter who he asked those questions of, nobody has done these things. And outside of God's revelation to man, nobody would be able to explain, really, these things. And so he begins then, he jumps right in, in verse 2 and 3 there, and he says, look, I don't understand things in the natural world. And then in verses 4, in verse 4, and he said, and I certainly don't understand things in the spiritual world. But then notice what he goes on to say, because if that's where it ended, then why are we here? If we can't understand anything in the spiritual world, what are we doing here? But notice what he says in verses 5 and 6. I can understand as the Lord has revealed these things. And so he says, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you, and you be found to be a liar. And so the revealed, Agor, I should say, they've been revealed to him, and not just to him, but to all of us who in humility look to the Lord for wisdom. We look to him for guidance. We look to him for understanding. And that's what Agor is going to do in this chapter. And not so much specifically say, this is what I'm doing. He just does it. And we here observing, taking it in, we want to make sure we learn this lesson. Agor is going to call us as men and women, young people, to understand our limited understanding of God and his creation and yet still trust him. Okay, that's what he's going to do here. I was, I was just jazzed up by this particular chapter this week. I like the Bible all the time. But this week, it was like, hey, that's pretty cool because I've learned some things. And I'll tell you about as we, we get here. Anyway, let's move on. The wise and humble answer to the questions in verse 4, who, has done, who knows these things? God and not man. And so then again, he says, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you, and you be found a liar. I'm going to say this statement. It's a bold statement, but I believe it. That's why I'm saying it. That a person will never truly trust the Lord if they can't bring themselves to trust his word. A person will never truly trust the Lord if they can't bring themselves to trust the word. And so when God's word declares something, that's your answer. God's word has spoken into it on that particular issue. So if you are the type of person that reads God's word and then asks yourself, well, how do I feel about that? Do I like what that says? 
Let's see if I'm willing to follow what it says. If you're a person that approaches the word of God in that particular way, you're not really placing your trust in God and his word. You're, tracing, tra- you're placing your trust in yourself. How do I feel about that? Do I want to follow that? Is that something I can get on board with? And so on. You're not trusting really the Lord in that instance. If you read the word and then pull back and say, okay, I, I see what it says here, but what does my society say about this? What does uh, popular opinion say about this? What's present day thought on this particular issue? And then you're going to weigh it to decide which of those you're going to follow. Then I say to you, you're not really trusting God and his word. You're trusting yourself in those instances there to draw your own conclusion as to what might be best in those circumstances. But notice what Agor says. He says, every word of God proves true. Proves true. That word prove there would be the same word we use to describe the, the metal that goes into the, the crucible and then the fire burns it out and you get rid of all the junk and you keep that which is true, the, the precious silver. And so that's the word that is used there. And so essentially what Agor is saying is the word of God proves through the difficulties of life that it is true. And, you know, the old expression, no, no atheist in foxholes, because when life gets difficult, we look for truth. And the word of God has proven itself to be true time and time and time again. It has withstood the test of time. God's word is as true today as it was 2,000 years ago. Despite the fact that some will say, well, you know, that's an old dusty book. And yeah, maybe it applied back then, but it doesn't apply now. God's word is as true today as it was 2,000 years ago because it's stood, withstood the test of time. And it's withstood the fires of opposition. A bunch of us went to go see that movie. Uh, I think it was called The Case for Christ. It was based on that particular book. I forget if that was the name of the movie or not. But it's that story of Lee Strobel, a story that is repeated again and again and again of somebody who set out to disprove the Bible so he could finally shut Christians up and only ended up proving the Bible to himself and become one of its leading advocates. I believe that's the story of Josh McDowell as well. It stands the test of time. It stands, withstands opposition. And as he goes on to say, those who take refuge in him, in his word, they discover that to be the case. And so he adds there that God's word and God's ways, notice, they become a shield about us there. They guard us. They protect us. They keep us from those things that the Lord knows are going to be to our detriment. Like we've been, I've been drawing sort of this picture. There are two different paths that you can choose to walk down. And one is filled with all those things that are going to trip us up and ensnare us and take us down. And the other one is a happy trail, so to speak. And it's a safe place that we can walk on. And the Lord knows that. And so the Lord, in his word and in uh, his nature, wants to guard us. He wants to protect us. He becomes our shield. And so we should never take away from God's word. We should never take away from God's word. Oh, I don't like what that says people aren't happy with this and so we can't talk about that we don't teach on these books of the bible because all that we should never do that and we should never add to god's word as well yeah i know what the bible says but in light of contemporary thinking we say you're adding to god's word and of course some people do these things formally and they take certain things out of the bible that they're not comfortable with and their little movement. We, don't look at the, we only look at the red letters of Jesus and not these and, and so on and so forth. Some people do that formally. 
Some add to God's word formally, like some of the cult groups. And yeah, the Bible's good, but you know, eh, don't worry about that here. Just study this book instead. And so they give you another text or another testament or the secret revealings to Mary Baker Eddy. You know, these kinds of ideas that come, they, they revere the Bible, sort of, I guess, in name, I guess you might say. But they've added to God's word. So that's formally doing those things. But we can even do these things informally. As I said, when we just ignore things we don't want to hear or we want to add things that the Bible doesn't actually say. And any attempt then to take away from what God has given us in his word is to call God a liar. You don't want to do that, right? But that's what it is. When we say, you know what, Lord, no, not this. We're calling him a liar because he's saying, no, no, yes, this. No, you're lying to me. Don't lie to me. Why did you do that? We don't want to call the Lord a liar. And at the same time, any attempt to add to what God has given is to essentially say, God, you did pretty good, but you didn't quite get it. Let me help you. And what we're declaring is that God's word is not all sufficient for our needs. Certainly not something we want to do. And so Agor points these things out, Agor, as soon as he begins here. Notice how he continues in verses 7 to 9. He says, two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying, and give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you, and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So, Agor has three steps so far. He has begun by acknowledging who he is. And the word he used was stupid. All right, thank you, Will. All right, and we, we talked about this during the week. All right, so the word he uses is stupid. He begins by establishing who he is. Then he tells us who God is, all wise. He then follows that up with a prayer. And it's a prayer for his life. It's a prayer for you and I as well. Interesting, it's the only prayer that is recorded in the book of Proverbs. Notice he begins, he says, two things that I ask of you. First is, verse six, remove far from me falsehood and lying and then in the second I'm sorry that's verse 8 and then in the second half of verse 8 he says give me neither poverty nor riches remove from me far from me lying falsehood and give me neither poverty nor riches now in that he recognizes his weaknesses Agor recognizes his weaknesses and he asks for the Lord's strength so that he would not succumb to those weaknesses. Let's look at them. First, he recognizes his need to be protected from lies and falsehood. He recognizes his need to be protected from lies and falsehood, lest he buy into those things and go the wrong direction. Now, where do those lies and falsehoods come from? The world around us, right? But even more dangerous are the lies and falsehoods that come from within us. You see, we naturally think lies and falsehood. And the devil knows that, and so he plays on that, and the world feeds into that, and we go astray. And what our friend Agor here says right from the beginning is, Lord, remove those lies and falsehoods far from me. Whether they're inside of me or they're from without, I don't want to give in to those things. I want to walk in your ways. He reminds me a lot there of when Jesus said to his disciples, they said to him, teach us how to pray. You go off for an hour and you pray. Teach us how to pray. And he said, when you pray, 
And then he goes into what we call the Lord's Prayer. And about halfway through that, he says, and pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's what Agor is doing. I am naturally tempted, Lord. The world pours out its temptation, Lord. I don't want to give in to it. Lead me not into temptation. Well, wouldn't it be a greater testimony if he went right up to temptation and took it on? No, not really. I would be like, well, why did you go there in the first place? Right? And I'd question your wisdom. Yeah, I'm glad you took it on. Good for you. Or whatever. But it seems to me to be more wise. I was going to say wiser, but then I don't even think that's proper English. Um, it would, maybe it is. I don't know. You're looking at me like, sure it is. Or whatever. We, anyway. Maybe you don't go there in the first place. Maybe that's the mark of wisdom. And so that's what he says, lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from falsehood and so on. That's his first prayer. His second prayer, he says, Lord, give me neither poverty nor riches or riches. Now, most of us have prayed the prayer, Lord, don't give me poverty. I imagine many of us did. Many of us, as parents, we pray that for our kids, you know, as they go off to college, Lord, please don't give them poverty. You know, help them get a good job or something like that. But it's very rare for someone to pray, Lord, don't give me riches. Let's just show of hands. Anyone ever prayed that prayer? Lord, I, you know, too much hassle. I don't want the riches or whatever. Most of us say, Lord, help me handle riches, you know, or things like that. But he says, Lord, don't give me poverty. Lord, don't give me riches. And the reason, again, is because he is keenly aware of his tendency to forget God when life is easy and to turn in desperation away from God when life is hard. And that's the experience of many people. When life is easy and humming along, God fades to the distance. People describe him as like this spare tire, you know, and when I need him, I just found out, my son and I, we have owned a car for about 10 years. I just found out we have a spare tire below the trunk area. We were cleaning the car, and I'm like, hey, look at that. We got a tire in here. You know what I mean? I had no idea. I'm glad it's in there and all these sorts of things. But many people approach God that way. Make sure you have it somewhere in the vehicle. You know, you can look and find it later on and how to use it. And that's the relationship with God. When life gets difficult, we cry out to him. And if life is easy, I don't need him. And we just move on here. And in other instances, life gets too difficult. And in desperation, we say, you know, God, where are you? And if you were a loving God, you would never. And things like that. And what Agur is saying is, Lord, I just want to be, I just want life to be steady, Freddy. Just right, I don't want to be too rich. I don't want to be too poor. I don't want to get too rich and forget you. I don't want to be too poor and curse you. Just help me live my life. What he is saying is, Lord, I don't want to sin against you. I don't want to sin against you in any way. That's a good prayer, isn't it? And so, Lord, whatever it takes to keep my eyes on you, help me to keep my eyes on you. I don't need to be rich. I don't need to be poor. That also reminds me of Jesus' prayer. How should we pray, Lord? When you pray, you say, give us this day our daily bread so that I would be dependent on you this day. And that's a, what Agor is essentially saying uh, to us from, from this, uh, this verse. Look at verse 10. He says, do not slander a servant to his master, lest he curse you and you be held guilty. Now, it seems like kind of a random statement in the midst of this buildup that we've had here. But nonetheless, Agor is wiser than me and you. So if you've been questioning his choice of verse inclusion, how dare you? 
Um, you're like, I didn't. You did. All right, anyway. But he says, do not slander a servant to his master. The King James uses the word accuse, which I think is a good uh, translation in this instance here. Don't accuse a servant unto his master, lest he curse thee and you be found guilty. The idea here would be simply this. It's a similar idea we've seen in other Proverbs, and that is don't get yourself involved in someone else's business. And so you notice there, it's not your servant that has to be dealt with. It's somebody else's servant. It's not your business. And so you don't need to get involved in it. All you're doing is setting yourself up to be the one who is found guilty. As somebody turns on you and says, well, let me tell you, or let me tell everybody else what you did, and so on. So he said, just stay out of it, lest he turn and curse you. That, word, that phrase there, curse you, is literally turn and make you despicable. Lay out all your dirty laundry, and so on. And so essentially his... Uh, his exhortation, that's what he's going to be doing throughout this passage, his exhortation is that un- harsh, unfair criticism spoken to other without another person present is just not right. You shouldn't be doing it. All right? It shouldn't be done and doing it without really having all the information is only going to make it worth worse. I would say this. You could summarize it this way. Look, you're just asking for trouble, and I don't want trouble. Right? I just want to live my life and keep my eyes on the Lord. Verse 11 through 14 They all go together. I'll read them to you. It said, There are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. There are those who are clean in their own eyes but are not washed of their filth. There are those, how lofty are their eyes, how high their eyelids lift. There are those whose teeth are swords, whose fangs are knives to devour the poor from off of the earth, the needy from among mankind. Now, My version uses the phrase, there are those. Some of the older versions use the phrase, there is a generation. And the idea there of there is a generation or there are those, generation oftentimes, not every time, but oftentimes in the scripture, describes a particular class of people or group of people that have certain characteristics in common, as opposed to having a common time frame in common. So my parents' generation, my dad was born in the 30s, and so on. That's a time thing. Here, though, and in many places in the scripture, it's talking about a particular group of people, a class of people here. And that group of people, they're characterized by these traits. You see there in verse 11, they dishonor their parents, cursing their father and and so on, and not blessing their mother. They're characterized by self-righteousness, and being in oblivion to their need for cleansing. You see that there, and I guess it is in verse 12 or so. He points out their pomposity and their pride, their high lifted eyes, and so on. And then in the end there, in verse 14, he talks about how harsh and how cruel they actually are. Couldn't help, as I was reading that, thinking about that, uh, comparing that with the Apostle Paul's words. And so Paul, the apostle, he wrote in 2 Timothy these words about the last days. Here's what he said. He said, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud. They'll be arrogant and abusive, disobedient to their parents. They'll be ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous. They'll be without self-control and brutal, and they will not be loving good treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Paul says, avoid such people. 
For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. They're always learning and yet never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Such similarities, but seemingly you take agors and you like quadruple it in the case here of what Paul is giving to us. But I think the point is that in every generation, and that's in the sense of age, that we will have a generation, which is in the sense of common traits, those that set themselves up in opposition to God and others. And so what Agor is saying, without saying it, but what he is saying is, look, I don't want to be a part of that generation. I don't want to be a part of that culture that is around me that thinks and acts in these particular way. He's saying, look, I want to think differently than the world around me thinks. He's saying, I want to respond differently to things that come my way. And, and he's ultimately saying, it's a call to holiness. I want to be set apart unto God, and I want to know him, and I want to walk with him. And his exhortation then to himself and to you and I is maybe best said in the words of the Apostle Paul, a little more familiar to you maybe. And in Romans 12, what Paul said was, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. He says, I don't want to be conformed to my generation around me. I want to think differently and act differently and respond differently. And I think it's so significant to take notice in Paul's words, when Paul says, don't be conformed, but be transformed. Paul says the secret to that transformation is the word of God, which is exactly what Agor said in verses 5 and 6 earlier in our chapter when he pointed to every word of God uh, proves true. The sure way to grow in wisdom and to keep yourself from the destructive thoughts and tendencies of the generation around you is to become a student of God's word. That is the sure way to grow in wisdom, is become a student of God's word. And of course, when I say become a student of his word, I don't simply mean learn what the book says. All right, so I, I have it all memorized and I know it and I could tell you how many chapters and verses are found here and there and who wrote what book. It's more than learning what the book says. It's learning what it says and then putting it into practice. It's doing what the book says. And that's the sure path to wisdom. Agor sees it. Paul saw it. You and I, we need to see it as well. Let's continue. Verses 15 and 16. Oh, boy. It says, the leech has two daughters. Give and give. Not very creative with their names. But nonetheless, three things are never satisfied. Four never say enough. Sheol, the barren womb, the land never satisfied with water, and the fire that never says enough. Now, he uses a formula here. It's first time, this is the only time I'll mention it because he does it throughout pretty much the rest of the chapter where he says uh, three and then four, you know, three of something and then four. And he's implying a list. It's a specific list. He'll give us specific things. It's not necessarily an exhaustive list. And in this first list that he gives us, he draws our attention to things that are never satisfied. And so thus they're continually crying, as it says there, they're, they're crying out, that's enough. Well, they're not doing that. They're not crying out, that's enough. The first, the leech. And that leech is always crying for more blood. That's why he named his daughters give and give. Just suck the blood right out of a person. As he compares these things to that, notice the first one in verse 16 is Sheol. That's the grave. The second is the barren woman. 
The third is the parched land, and the fourth one there is fire. Four things always craving for more. The grave, the dead, never seem to stop dying, and the grave of humanity never seems to be filled. A particular graveyard might fill up, but they'll open another one up down the road from the place where they're going to need to bury people. And so the grave never seems to stop craving more. The barren woman, feeling, if you will, the ache of, em- of its emptiness, and what is sometimes described as an unfulfilled purpose. You think in the scripture of Rachel. You think of Hannah as they longed for, as they cried, finally. So much so that the, the one priest thought that Hannah was drunk as she cried out to the Lord for this child. The parched ground, the earth, never, it just seems to continually drink up the water. Even look at the flooding that is taking place now in North Carolina. Three weeks, five weeks, three months, that water is going to dissipate and it's going to be gone. 30 feet of water in some places and higher, and yet the ground will just suck it up, never cries enough. And finally, fire. Fire will burn as long as fuel is there to burn. It'll continue to burn. Now, of course, there's a deeper meaning here. What Agor is looking at is these things that are always craving for more. What Agor is going to do, and this is what really got me this week, is he's going to observe his surroundings, take that information, and apply it to his heart. And so Agor recognizes, I'm like those things. I'm like fire. I'm like the water. I'm like the barren womb. I'm like the other one, the grave there. Because what Agor has experienced in his life is what you and I have experienced, what people experience in each of our lives. There's always this craving for something more. There's always this longing that just can't seem to be complete. And so we try to fill it, and we say to ourselves, if I can only get that job... Soon we want a better job. And if I can only establish that relationship, soon we want a better relationship. If I could only get that million, and then we want a second million, and a third million, and a fourth million. And we think that thing that we acquire, that person that we call our own, is going to bring satisfaction. And what we discover is this, what many of us in this room have discovered, it is only satisfied in Jesus. It is only satisfied in a right relationship with the Lord. One thing, and that's unhindered, an unhindered relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Augustine, many of you know his story, but Augustine, St. Augustine, some of us call him or refer to him as, he sort of lived a wild child lifestyle. He came from sort of a wealthy background. He had a lot of money at his disposal, and so he kind of lived it up. And he finally came to the end of himself. And eventually Augustine would say this. It's like a prayer to the Lord. He would say, Thou has made us for thyself, and our hearts will never be at rest until they rest in thee. Amen? Apparently we haven't all learned that. Because you're not yelling out. That's right. That's my experience. That's been my experience. I ran after all sorts of other things, even after I became a believer ran after other things, maybe this will bring me my satisfaction, you know, and finally I'll be at rest here. It's in him. It's in him. And that's Agor's silent exhortation. Find your satisfaction in him. Don't let yourself chase after all sorts of other things that are not going to accomplish what you hope they are going to accomplish. Now, you want to go after a million bucks and get that in your bank account, good for you. Go after it. But don't go after it thinking that you'll finally be at peace when you get it, because you won't. I can tell you this side of things. You want to land that awesome job, do it. 
Go to school, get your education, do what you need to do, pursue that awesome job, build up the background needed, and get that awesome job. But don't run after it thinking that this is going to bring you the meaning and purpose and satisfaction and rest that your heart is longing for. All of that is found in one place. And it's in a proper relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Agor sees that, he knows that, he observes it, and he applies it to himself. You see this idea? He's keenly observant of these things, and then he's prayerful about these things. Lord, what does that mean for me? And he learns the lesson. And here we are six months later, he's wiser than he was six months earlier. That's the type of people we want to be, correct? All right, let's continue. Verse 17, he says, The eye that mocks a father... This is gory. We'll just say that from the start. The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. Yikes. All right, pretty vivid description there. A vivid description to tell the ruin waiting for the child who mocks and scorns their parents. My goodness. He says that a disobedient mocker will come to grief like a person who either their living body or their carcass is picked apart by the ravens and the vultures. I mentioned this before. Even today, the Jewish people, they, pra- they bury their dead the day the person died. I don't know what they do if it's really late into the, just before sundown or whatever. But their practice is to get the person into the ground or how, whatever they're going to deal with the body as soon as it happens, the day of their particular death. It's con- considered completely dishonoring to keep their body sort of lying out when their spirit is no longer there. And so he's touching on this particular idea. There's an old Middle Eastern curse. It translates roughly this way. The crow shall one day put out thine eyes. So you're giving me trouble. You know, you're annoying me. You know what? One day the crow's going to put out your eyes, buddy. You talking will fight? You know, that's like a bad word. Like you shouldn't say that about a particular person. And perhaps that is the source of Agor's thinking here. I'm not a science guy, but here's one thing good the Lord did in my life. Typically when something comes to like science, my responses glaze over or like, yeah, whatever, sure, just okay, kind of thing. And so I think I miss some of the wonderful things that science can reveal to us or that things like this. And, and I'm about to tell you something. You're like, that's not even science, Greg. We would have learned it in the science class. So yes, it's science. All right? It's not history or it's not my English class or something. There's a branch of science devoted to birds. Anyone know what they're called? See, that's weird to me that you know that. You know what I mean? That's great. Look at that. So they're called ornithologists. Did I say it right? All right. And, and did you know it too? Okay, it was just uh, Kelly here. Ornithologists, the branch of science devoted to birds, it tells us that birds of prey begin their attack upon either a carcass or a living person or animal by plucking out their eyes first and foremost. Now, that's interesting to me. And it seems as if, now who gets into the mind of a bird to actually know why they do what they do? But it seems as if instinct is telling that bird that if you can blind that person, that animal, then you limit their ability to get away and they become easy prey. Remember, this is what birds of prey will do. So keep that idea, and I think that adds some insight into what perhaps Agor is going here, because what he would be saying then is this, that if you are a person given 
to dishonoring your father and mother, rebelling against the pla- their place in your life, you are setting yourself up for blindness and thus making yourself further susceptible to attack. Now, of course, we're not talking about literal blindness. But our parents have been placed in our lives as the, our first authority. Our first authority in our lives. They guide us, they direct us, they try to keep us safe, they try to put us on a path where we're going to have success in, in various endeavors and things like that. And what Agor is saying here, what the scriptures really say in other places as well, if you don't learn to obey that authority and you adopt this practice of rebelling against that authority, you're not going to obey any authority. And you're going to constantly be struggling in rebellion against any other form of authority that comes your particular way. You've become blinded to how things work. That is not a recipe for success in life. Well, I just rebel against everything. Yeah, good luck with that. You're not going to get very far. And Agor is, perhaps that's the reason why he talks about this idea of the eyes being gouged out. You're blinded. And so how important that we honor our father and our mother. Continues verses 18 and 19. He goes back to this idea of three and then four. He says, three things are too wonderful for, for me. Four, I do not understand. Okay. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a virgin. Now, he presents this representative list to us. These are things that cause wonder. Things that are beyond a man's ability to explain. Unsearchable. Too wonderful for me and too wonderful even to fully know. The first is the eagle in the sky. Able to fly so high, able to fly so swiftly, and yet seemingly without any effort. Just sort of full of grace. How is that? And so Agor just pulls back and he observes the eagle. I don't do stuff like that. I'll read a book, you know, I'll learn some history thing, I'll watch a TV program. I don't just observe nature. And so this is one of the things the Lord said, maybe you should, Greg. Maybe I could teach you some things or whatever. Don't give me that head nod like you know. All right, here. All right, and so he observes it. Too wonderful for me. The way of a serpent on a rock. Has anybody here tried to climb a mountain? Some of you? And you you go and you get all your ropes and you go buy your shoes and you get special gloves and you climb up this and you tie in and you buckle in and you get all the way up to the mountain and you get to the top. And good for you. That's pretty awesome. The snake, this little thing, just sort of makes its way there. And then it gets to the top and it just lies in the sun and it relaxes. And you're like, how is that possible? I'm a human being with the ability to think and process, and it's impossible for me to get up there, or nearly impossible, and yet this snake can make its way up there, no problem at all. How's that possible? Agra says, I don't know, that's beyond me. The way of a ship on the high seas. You take a tiny little rock and throw it into the water, and what's it do? It sinks like a rock. That's why they say it. It sinks like a rock. But you can put a boat the size of a building And somehow that thing can float around out there. And Agor looks at that and says, that's just remarkable to me. I just can't believe that we're smart enough to figure out how to do that. It blows my mind. The way of a man with a virgin. This is meant to draw sort of attention to the power of young love. And I've said this before. You could be a knucklehead. And young men usually are knuckleheads. I was a knucklehead. And then all of a sudden you bring a young lady into that person, that boy's life. And they're changed. 
And all of a sudden, they start cleaning themselves, you know, and they're like polite, and they, they're nice to people and all that kind of stuff. And the power of young love and the fascination of the way a young man's ways will be changed when a woman has won his heart. And Agor is just observant of these things. He says they're too wonderful for him. And he allows that knowledge to further humble him. Because there is one who can explain every one of those things and how those things work, and that's the Lord. And so he's further humbled in his presence, and thus he can grow in even greater wisdom. Verse 20, he says, this is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth, and she says, I haven't done anything wrong. Maybe this is a fifth thing that just causes him to wonder, and that's how someone can be engaged in sin, and then moments later say, I didn't do anything wrong. How is that possible? Well, the person's hardened in their conscience. And what causes a person to be hardened in their conscience? Well, we could just guess it. Well, it could be this, it could be that, it could be this. Well, the Scripture tells us. And we know that's truth. And so the Scripture tells us, the writer of Hebrews said to us, what causes a person to be hardened in their conscience is the deceitfulness of sin. Look at I exhort one another daily, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so Agor brings it up, not just to point fingers and say, could you believe this lady over here? She could do that and act like nothing. He brings it up to say, Lord, I don't want to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And the exhortation to you and I, don't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We're going to do a little more. Oh, Under three things, the earth trembles. Under four, it can't bear up. A slave when he becomes king, a fool when he's filled with food, an unloved woman when she gets a husband, and a maidservant when she displeases her master. Four things. This time, four things that he considered intolerable, unbearable for himself. Things we might say this, that's just not right. Ever hear people say, I don't understand why good people suffer. That's just not right. That's what he's getting at in these particular verses here. The first is the servant who rises to power and then abuses that power. So he doesn't go that deep into it, but we know he's not just saying a servant that rises to power. Because you have an example of Joseph, for instance, in the scripture. A slave who rises to power and is held up as a hero to, to us in the scriptures. He's talking about, as Solomon has mentioned elsewhere, the servant who rises to power and then abuses that power. That's intolerable. If anybody should understand the difficulty of life at the lowest sectors of society, it should be the servant or the slave. And for them then to rise to the highest sector of society and mistreat people at the lowest sector of society, that doesn't make sense. That's just not right. He draws our attention to that. The next one is the fool who is filled with food. Now, this person, when filled, they're a fool. But when filled, they're only encouraged to continue in their folly. Because now they have the resources, now they have, they're, they're physically strong to do so, so they'll just continue in that foolishness. You know, remember that children's book, If You Give a Mouse a Cookie? I just learned that there's other, like, versions of the book. You give a moose a muffin is another classic that is out there, or whatever. But you're encouraging it. Like they say, don't give a wild cat like milk or something like that. It'll be there every single day looking for food. You encourage it. That's what he's getting at, the fool that is filled. He says, this is, it's just not right. He goes on, an unloved woman when she gets a husband. A better translation of that is probably an unlovable woman. 
And that would be a mean-spirited, hard-hearted, hateful woman who typically would be like, stay away you know, from her or whatever. And yet somehow this woman lands herself, this husband, and then abuses him and mistreats him and speaks you know, accordingly to him. Agor says, look, that doesn't make sense. There's plenty of other wonderful women out there that don't get one. And this lady gets a husband. I don't get it. And then the last one is a woman who's brought into the home to be of assistance to the the wife of the home and then before long displaces the wife. And the example of Hagar, for instance, in the book of Genesis and all the problems that go there as well. Hagar essentially saying, Lord, there are things that are just not right. But, and we would all agree that there are things that are just not right in society. But what Agor does is he entrusts himself to the Lord anyway. And see, what some people do, not in wisdom, what some people will do is, well, I don't understand it. I wouldn't do it that way. And if God was all powerful, then he would step in. And so I'm not going to follow that God. That's not what Agor does. Agor says, you know what? I don't understand it. And if I were God, I wouldn't do it that way. But I'm not God, and so, Lord, I entrust myself to you. And it further is a, it's a further mark of Agor's wisdom. There are things in life we just don't necessarily understand, but he entrusts himself. Psalm 147, it says this, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. And so even when we can't understand something or we don't presently understand something, we can entrust ourselves to the one who does. Amen, good friends? Well, we failed in our desire. And so we'll have to come back to the remaining five verses or so uh, the next time we're together. I, I just have too much stuff still to talk about. But uh, be observant. Be prayerful. You know what I did this week in obedience to this lesson? I was doing my quiet time. I got a brand new Bible. Isn't it cute? Huh? I was telling my friends, there was something wrong with my other Bible. Every year the words were shrinking and getting smaller. So it's probably a defect in the Bible. Uh, And so I got a new Bible, so I started uh, my quiet times again in the book of Genesis. And I came across uh, one of the early passages there. And I I wanted to dig into sort of the science of that particular passage. And I hate science. I really do. There's nothing about it that I find interesting. I'm sorry. I like history. We can talk about those things and and people and stuff. But science, I I don't get it. All right, whatever. If the Bible says it, I believe it kind of thing. And so I I read some some science articles this week uh, on some of the stuff I was reading in the Scripture. So I'm very good. I'm very good. That's all I wanted you to know uh, here. So challenge yourselves. Be keenly observant. Be prayerful. Lord, what does this mean? And I believe the Lord will use every one of those circumstances to grow you. And that's what we want. Amen, good friends? Thank you for being here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and, Lord, for the reality of life around us. Lord, I think of uh, the book of Romans and how in chapter 1, it, he, Paul talks about how it reveals the, the earth itself and the things around us reveal who you are. And, Lord, we want to be more observant of those things. We thank you for your word. Lord, give us a heart to obey your word, just as this fellow Agor had. And Father, give us the ability to trust you even when it's difficult to do so and things don't seemingly make sense. Lord, be honored, be glorified as we go from this place, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.